And also, if you're smart, like Jeff, uh, many people don't know this, he copyrighted the phrase missional community, so he's independently wealthy, uh, based off of the royalties. <laughs> he is. Not true. <laughs> Jesus declares that on occasion, a storm will come that tests whether our practices are built on a rock or upon the sand. As we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, we unpack five shifts the church must make to ensure our foundation is on the rock. Friends, welcome to episode 10 of the Disciples Made podcast in season two. We've been talking about the five necessary shifts that we as church leaders need to make in this post-COVID environment, the, the shifts that are just left absolutely necessary to not only think about, not only to gain a intellectual mastery of, but to actually do. And this fifth shift is moving from we can do it, you can help, kind of uh, come join us as we do the ministry work, to you can do it, we can help. An Ephesians 4 perspective on the church, where we as church leaders equip all of God's people works of service. We are so blessed to welcome one of the people that has influenced my life, Rob. I know this guy has influenced your life significantly. Do you mind introducing this guy for us? Yeah, you bet. Back, I don't know, it was seven, eight, nine years ago now, Alan Hirsch, who we affectionately call the missional pope, the Yoda, uh, he was leading something called Future Travelers, and I got to be his sidekick. And the whole journey was about uh, inviting church leaders and the prevailing model who'd been successful, who were starting to notice the anomalies. Like, hey, we're, we're really great at gathering people. We're not really seeing any disciple makers emerge, for example. We're, we're really great at introducing people to Christ on the weekends, but our folks aren't really living like missionaries. Um, we're seeing addition, not multiplication. Uh, Dave Ferguson got this group of originally 10 churches together. Um, and then it became something that started to multiply. And we were trying to introduce these church leaders to other ways. And that's when I got to meet uh, Jeff Vanderstout. Um, they had started what is now the Soma family of churches at that point in time. They were in just Tacoma. Now they're in, we'll have to ask Jeff, a lot of cities. <laughs> um, and I quickly realized I was, you know, in the presence of a, a, a genuine spiritual father. Um, and because I was working with Alan to host those, I ended up spending two or three weeks a year. So I got a pretty deep dive into their culture. And Jeff was so open with his life, you know, like, and like I got to meet his wife and kids and eat dinner in his house. And it was family. He's in the top, you know, five people who've shaped the way that I think and I live. And as my wife and I saw a microchurch emerge from new disciples in our neighborhood, I was just living out the stuff I'd learned from Soma. Yes. And so with that said, ladies and gentlemen, one of my favorite people, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt. Really glad you're here today, man. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. And that's very, very kind, Rob. I'm always blessed and encouraged by your your blessing. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hey, why don't, uh, for those uh, of our listeners that may be new to never heard of Soma, uh, why don't you just quickly kind of tell us, just quick snapshot of your background, who you are, 
your mission, why it matters to you. Hold on just one second, Rob. Let me jump in here. Oh, okay. I had a thought I want to just throw out here in the middle of, you know, in the of our unscripted time as we go. Uh, it, it just dawned on me, Jeff could actually have, uh, have been a guest on all five yes, of these could. shifts. That's true. And, and he didn't make them because of COVID. <laughs> he started making these shifts 20 years before COVID. Because he read his Bible. Because he, well, there's, the, he read the Bible. And yes, and knowing just kind of, well, it, so with that in mind, Jeff, like you started having these splinters way before a lot of us did. And it was your work, your long investment in that same direction that has given us the practices and languages like gospel fluency and other things. Go back that far, if you would. Like That's when good. did the splinters start and how has that resulted in what you now do? Honestly, I think it started in growing up in a household that, had a very open approach to life. Um, so just hospitality was expressed in my home freely, normatively. It, in fact, I, I was quite surprised later on in life that that was not the norm for most Christians in terms of opening your table, opening your home, uh, opening your finances. I mean, that's, that was normal for me. So I have to really credit that part of what I understood about following Jesus to my parents. Uh, but it was doing youth ministry for 14 years or so as a youth pastor and seeing students in many cases uh, become much more effective than their parents in making disciples. Because when I became a Christian, I I was 21 when I finally came to Christ, grew up in a Christian home, but was really just faking it the whole way. And when I really did meet Christ, which was in Spain, it was in the context of people doing the very things my parents had done, but very gospel-centered in their approach. So uh, I got to live with a, a Spanish family and eventually came to came to surrender to Jesus through that. But then entering into youth ministry, my only understanding was I'm not here to put events on. I'm here to help kids reach their friends who don't know Jesus, teach them the basics of the faith, grow them up, and then multiply the same experience. And so I was doing that with junior high and high school kids for years. And then they would graduate into what they would call big church and generally be told to take a seat and invite a friend. And in in some ways it was like, okay, you used to be on the field playing the game, but now that you're an adult, you sit in the sands and you watch just a few people play the game. And I saw that happen in three different churches, all very different kinds, and finally just said, I, I just I just can't do this anymore. And I found myself, most of my youth ministry years, I was not reading youth ministry books. I was reading Newbegin, and I was reading N.T. Wright, and I was reading missionary stories, and I was reading stuff that some people have never heard of that you'll find in Australia and England because they were wrestling with it ahead of us. And I just found myself connecting more with their narrative as they looked at the scriptures. And I just, like Rob said, you know, kind of joking, but I just kept seeing it in the text. I mean, I couldn't read the Gospels and Acts and not see a different picture of what the church should be. So we moved back to Seattle. We'd spent six years in Chicago. We moved back to Seattle and started a church called Soma. And it really was the, the from the text, Ephesians 1, 22, 23, where Christ is the head of his church, which is his body, in which he fills all in all. And so it was the idea that church should be everywhere every day, and people should be equipped to be on mission no matter where they're at. And every Christian is a disciple maker. The question is, are they making a disciple of Jesus or somebody else? <clears throat> That's really the question. And so we just said, what if we were to make it normative that every Christian gets trained? Every Christian is on mission. Every Christian is making disciples. And we didn't even know what to call it. I mean, 
the first were like they call them house groups and we realized it's not really a house group it's a people on mission well so that's where we landed on the, the language of missional community and uh started with one and multiplied to four and then eight and 16 and 32 and on and on and we were i mean in every sense you know if you say a mega church is over a thousand we were that but it was all in groups we had 1100 people in missional communities on mission and only 800 gathering on Sunday. So we had the opposite of what most churches have. And um, that's really how it began. And then that led to a family of churches that's all over North America and Asia and Eastern Europe and Europe and uh, Mexico and moving now to Central and South America, but really all with the same kind of missional gospel centered DNA in all of it. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, and then I got to replant a church six years ago, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> and um, getting back to work now for the larger work of Saturate and Soma. And Saturate's vision is to see gospel saturation hubs in key cities all throughout North America that are bringing the church together, unified on mission, equipping their people for everyday ministry so that actually Jesus's prayer in John 17 gets fulfilled. So that's really what I'm giving a lot of my time to now. Super helpful. It sure is. And uh, Jeff, we've got a, a common question that we've been asking all of our guests. And I want to ask you that in just a minute. You know, we sent these to you ahead of time. So you're expecting that. But here's one that's kind of a off the cuff thing. I think most of the folks listening to this podcast have already gotten to the point where they've had this one in their mind and they're asking questions about what to do differently. And of course, the nature of this season is how has COVID kind of either deepened those splinters or caused those splinters. And they're in this investigative thing. And I don't want to go past something that you said without uh, taking the, the, the magnifying glass and, and zooming down in on it a little bit more clearly. You talked about youth leaving your influence as a, a youth pastor who were on the field and then go um, into you know, to the graduated experience, so to speak, uh, to sit down. They moved, like the title of our little session here is, you know, going from uh, we can do it, you can help, to you can do it, we can help. You had empowered those students with a you can do it, we can help, and then they graduated to uh, we can do it. You can help. Just have a seat. I can't help but to see what I perceive is the expression on those students' faces over the first 18 months of going from one to the other. And I can't help but to think that would be part of what broke your heart. Can you can you just unpack that a little bit and how that was a part of your decision making? Because if people don't get a why behind the what, and the why isn't more than just I get to survive my church through this, <laughs> then I think we've all missed the point. Yeah, come on. So can you just talk a little bit about what happens in the soul of an individual that goes from, you can do it, we can help, to the other? Well, I think they completely feel like their legs got cut out from underneath them, and their value as a member of the body of Christ is diminished unbelievably. And so for me watching that, and I think it's on it, I'm just going to say it straight. I think it's, it's a narcissistic codependency that they got called into, which is help me build my thing. And you just celebrate me now. Um, and so I think there's a real brokenness in the church. And as a result, many of them just left. I mean, we, we know that from the studies, Pine Top studies and others are saying like, there's a mass exodus of the of the millennial generation and the generation after them because they're just like, why in the world would I come do your thing? 
And so for me, it broke my heart because I'm watching these kids on the front line of mission and they're seeing the spirit of God being poured out and they're being effective with Jesus and his work. And now they're being told they don't, the best thing they can do is sit down and maybe serve in children's ministry. Not that that's bad uh, and certainly give your money, but man, we can't let you go do this because you might be able to do it without us. And I, I think they just saw behind, I think they saw behind the curtain, you know, it's kind of like the wizard of Oz. It's like, Oh, I see what you're doing now. And for many of them, it, it just led to a deep disillusionment about what the church really is. And that they found greater causes to give their life to after that. And so many of them have gone on to great works. Thankfully, a lot of kids that I got to pour into went and started churches or went to other parts of the world and serve. And it's not like Jesus isn't still building his church. But I think those churches missed out on a generation ready, equipped to really step up into what could have been, I think, a movement of God in some of those places. One in particular was the last one I was in. So, you know, it strikes me that it's, you know, they're the most marketing savvy generation, you know, millennials and younger. And they step in and they go, well, you know, a marketing campaign when we see one. And that's such a radically reduced, been colonized by the culture expression of the church that why would they stay? Yeah. And I was going to leave just to be clear. Like my last post, I was. I resigned and I was ready to go into the business world because I thought if the church, and that was my original training in college before seminary, if the church is only going to do this, I feel like I could do more disciple making as a businessman, building companies that could mobilize employees over the world than getting them stuck in one building. You know, it's like, so I, I almost went that direction. God directed me to church planting. That's that's so powerful. If you're if you're listening, I hope you can hear uh, the impact of that. Disciples made kind of the reason I knew to ask the question is I've seen it on the other side. You've got people that just assumed that the lid was the volunteer role I can do in the church. Uh, and then they, you know, it's like somebody opened up the canvas or the aperture of how the spirit could start to, you know, create a work of art through their life and their giftings and their passions and things like that. And when we truly did turn it to, you can do it and we can help the life came alive. And, you know, Jesus in John 10, 10 says, I came that you might hand out bullets. I mean, uh, <laughs> you might have life and have it to the full. There's the, the sarcasm again. I feel, I'm sorry about that. But when you think of it in these terms and, and what we're going to leave on the line, if we leave the lid at what they can do within the walls, we should we should be absolutely scared to death that we're the ones who are holding that much of the Spirit's power captive. All right, I'll absolutely. stop preaching. We've got a guest on here. Here's the question that we ask, <laughs> have asked all of our guests. Uh, Andrew Crouch has posed the question, is COVID-19 just a snowstorm, a winter season, or an ice age for the church? How do you answer that, and, and, and why do you give us that answer? It's clearly at least a winter season. It's not just a snowstorm. Um, I do wonder if it's an ice age. Uh, that's a big question mark for me. And the reason why is because, you know, with a snowstorm, it's like, okay, school is off for a couple of days and we get back to normal. I don't think we're getting back to normal. I think there's a new normal. That's why I would lean more towards ice age. I think there's a new normal uh, coming. Uh, all everything that we know tells us that people will leave, have left the church. Pastors are done. Many are ready to throw in the towel. Uh, some are, but some are on the other side. We're going like maybe God's getting our attention and using this moment to reveal the cracks, to 
to show what was never there, that, that this is a facade that we had, that we thought we were doing something. And then when people don't have a Sunday regular gathering, they don't know what to do. Families don't know how to do family worship. The, um, men and women don't know how to just talk to people about Jesus. They don't know how to even have a prayer life. Like all these other things, that's the stuff that people are discovering. And I've been saying, it's like it's provided for us a divine physician trip. Like we've gone to the divine physician. He said, I'm now going to let you see how sick you were so that we can now get after it. And so in that sense, I would lean towards ice age in the sense that I don't think we're going back to something. I think it's a new norm. And I think it's revealed things that we can't hide from anymore. And I, in fact, I think that's all good, to be honest. Like, I'm celebrating this as hard as it is. I'm celebrating what I think it's going to become if we're willing to step into it. So that'll yeah. be the question. That's been Are our experience, to too, since COVID's begun. The, the type of conversation we're having with church leaders and the posture that they're bringing behind it uh, is actually more encouraging to me than any other time since I've been doing what I'm doing. Um, Cause there's a genuine spirit of repentance. I believe that it's not just a pragmatic question anymore. That the spirit of God is bringing illumination to people's um, unbelief and to the ways that we've um, compromised what it means to be the church. And so that's invigorating man. And in the form of church that we're, talking about today and exploring today is pandemic proof. Um, I know for us with the Kansas City Underground, it's actually accelerated what we're doing. We've seen microchurches emerging right on through the pandemic and a massive increase in discovery Bible studies and baptisms. And I'm not saying that to um, toot our horn. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's, it's like the diamond against the black backdrop. It's like there is a way of being the church that is invincible. And if we stay with Jesus, he'll lead us there. I'm just curious, like, tell us, tell us some stories from the Soma family of churches here in, the, in this COVID season, in this winter season. What have you all been seeing? The strength of what we had in place that we were already organized, our primary organizing structure for Soma was a missional community, not the Sunday gathering. So because that was the primary organizing principle, the COVID realities, certainly in some cases made it harder because like California and Washington, you couldn't even get together with your missional community. So it went to Zoom and that's been really tough. So we actually had to reduce it to our DNA size, which is three men or three women. And so what we've actually seen is those are all getting stronger. Uh, discipleship's going deeper. Emotional health is being dealt with in ways it wouldn't have before. Uh, partly because it has to be, but second, because the the reduction of discipleship to three people uh, forces you to get a whole lot closer and a whole lot more vulnerable. And like, so the, there's a depth that's being produced, I think, in this season in most of our churches. Now, there's also loss. I think there's deep, there's deep pruning going on. Um, but we know that God prunes for the sake of greater fruitfulness. So, so everyone's feeling differing degrees of that. And depending on the city, you know, if you're in Texas, you've been able to nothing hardly change for a long time because Texas just said, forget you, we're doing whatever we want. But if you're like us in Washington, we've been one of the strictest places in the country. So, you know, what it's done is it's led to greater innovation. It's led to greater ownership. I mean, I'm seeing the you have to mobilize the priesthood, you know, where, where we might've gotten a little lazy or been able to fall back a little bit on stronger leadership or, you know, do we do still have Sunday gatherings? And I think some of us maybe leaned into that a little more in certain seasons. And this forced us to re 
uh, embrace our original heartbeat as a church. So we're seeing that. And, um, you know, I've, I've been humbled because I'm seeing people come to faith and and I'm like, they didn't even come to faith through a gathering or even a mission of community. They just happen to like kind of stumble into it with us. And you're going like, God's still the author and perfecter of our faith. At the end of the day, he saves people and he uses whatever means possible. So, so yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. I, I'd say one thing I want to brag on a little bit is the original church, Soma Tacoma, you know, right before COVID hit in November there, the guy that I poured into mentored, discipled was a son of son really in the faith for me, his name is Randy, took his life. And, uh, and it, we thought it was gonna devastate, the church was done. Like we literally, I mean, it was so devastating, so dark. And I just got to go and appoint uh, six new elders there uh, last Sunday uh, that have been trained for this last season, but really they were being trained all along. It's just that they were in, in, you know, in the church, not really being noticed. And all of a sudden through tragedy and loss and then COVID, it's like the church mobilized and got stronger and they're stronger than they've ever been from what I can see. So, you know, it's hard. We're hopefully we're all feeling sad appropriately around the loss, but I'm also seeing the the pruning and the greater fruitfulness in some cases. So yeah, it's been encouraging. I mean, one of the, the through lines through all of that is your commitment to equipping. And it's one of the things we really want to land on today. You talked about the temptation you know, mm-hmm. to maybe, yeah, that was curious. Yeah, fall back into um, like a the Death Star's gravitational pull, <laughs> right, so. right? Leaning on the weekend service. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, Alan Hirsch uses this great analogy: if you're learning how to play chess and you're learning from a master, they'll take the queen off of the chessboard so that you're forced to learn how to use all these other pieces. And in the Western Church, the queen has been the weekend service. And what's interesting is many church leaders, if you were to say, hey, do you equip your people? They'd say, yeah, I equip my people when I preach on Sunday. I, I mean, that's what I do all the time. I'm, I'm studying and preparing these sermons to equip God's people for the works of service. And our small groups equip people uh, so that they've got great content and they've got some community. I'm curious, uh, what do you perceive to be the primary differences between teaching people and equipping people? Because sometimes those get conflated or confused. So what are your thoughts on that, Jeff? Yeah. And I, I'll, I want to even look at Jesus. Jesus, I don't think would say he was ever equipping people when he preached sermons to large groups. Though I don't think he would say he was equipping people. I think he would say he was informing them about what the kingdom was like. He was probably inspiring them to consider what it would look like to follow him. Uh, I think he was, I think he was confronting. There was, re, there was rebuke going on. There was correction about wrong views. But if you'd ask Jesus, who do you equip? He would point to his 12 and also the ladies that were with him. You know, those, that small band. I mean, he even said it, who are my brothers and sisters? He said, those who are doing the will of my father. And he looked around, you know, didn't even include Mary in that at the moment, you know, his, his mother. And so he would say the people he equipped were the people he did life with and trained to do the very things he did and then did them with him, them and then watched them do it, and then sent them out to do it, and had them come back and report how they did it. It was always activity-oriented. It was never purely listening. And so I'd say most people on Sundays are inspiring, informing, correcting, maybe doing some rebuke, but they're not equipping. That's not, that's, it may be a piece of equipping if you call those parts part of it, but true equipping is enabling people to do the very thing 
that you're calling them to do. And I have a, an acronym I use for what I, when I say something is truly equipping, I say it's deeper. So it's D-E-E-P-E-R. It's demonstrated. They have to have seen it. It's expounded. They need to have heard it, uh, hopefully based in God's word, which is what I think most of Sunday is doing. It's expounding primarily. Uh, they have to experience it. So it's got to happen to them somewhere. Then they have to practice it. Uh, so they actually go do it. And then we it exposes. Uh, it, it reveals what they can't do, their ignorance, their fears, insecurities, the weaknesses. And then you take time to R, reflect on it. Jesus would always do that. Let, let's talk about what just happened so that then we can repeat the process. And I, I coach uh, soccer. I played three sports in high school. Like I, I wasn't equipped by a chalk talk. I was equipped by getting out on the field and practicing. And I, I think if you don't practice the very things with observation and reflection, you're not actually equipping people. I really love that breakdown, Jeff. What you basically uh, set up there is we don't have to choose between teaching and equipping. They can work together and they should work together. We just have to recognize the limitations of teaching without equipping and perhaps equipping without the teaching. Uh, because Jesus absolutely used both, and I don't think Jesus would have wasted his time. He did preach to the multitudes, but then he called things down to get to that equipping level and equipped the 12 enough to be able to carry the thing on when they were done. So so Jesus, you know, as I look at Jesus and how he equipped uh, those 12, like he had to have had a plan. There had to be some type of structure, some type of pathway that he had in mind. And I'm, I'm guessing that there were some fundamental skills uh, that he needed to know that they had fundamental skills, understandings, tools in their tool belt. So that when he left, uh, they would have the ability to do that. So what are those fundamental skills and tools that you use to develop folks with in the SOMA communities in order to accomplish those results? We would say, first of all, there's four key environments that you have to sh- help people learn how to shape and live in. One is life with God. So that's spiritual formation. And I, I think we assume that far too often, that they know how to, how to really have a communing life with God. So, and I assume that in this, this post I'm in right now, I, I, everyone knew of this church that I took over that was known for gospel-centered preaching and tons of evangelism uh, responses and all that. But I assumed they knew how to commune with the Lord through prayer, solitude, silence, fasting, all the practices. And they, and they in most cases, didn't. So we, we I, I assume that. So life with God, life on life. So you have a few others that, are, that we call as our DNA groups. Know your story, know your struggles, and know what you need uh, and can help bring it to you. Uh, then life and community, that would be our, our missional communities doing life together meals together, life together, and then life on mission, that we actually have an outward facing life that we know how to share the gospel. We know how to introduce them to Jesus and establish them in the faith. So those are kind of the four environments that we tend to think of. And then our pathway, at least now in my present church, but almost all the churches have some kind of pathway like this, where we, if they become a Christian, we're going to, first thing we're going to do is we're going to introduce them to, to making sure they understand the gospel applies to all of life. Uh, so that's kind of our basics. And then as they learn how to do it, they learn how to tell their story, making Jesus the hero. They, and they, we do this all in deeper, all that acronym deeper training. They see it, they're taught on it, they experience it, they practice it, exposes whether they can do it. We reflect back to them how well they did it. So our pathway includes that. It includes 
learning how to do DNA types of conversations. So we, we fishbowl that in front of people so they can watch it being done and see how it works. Um, and then learn how to do a feelings check-in when they do it. So we're paying attention to our emotions. Uh, they're paying attention to what they believe. So they're doing gospel fluency, but holistically in those DNA groups. So we actually train them how to do it by getting them in them and have them practice. And at DOXA, we do a six-week mentor DNA for people. So we get them in them, and then you have a mentor walk with the three of you to make sure you know how to do it really well by the time they leave you on your own. And so, and then after that, it's like, okay, you're also in community. So we're going to teach you all the basics of missional community. And how do you do love one another like family? What does it look like to bring the kingdom of God in tangible forms? And then how do we then together as a group be a witnessing community to our non-believing friends? So we did basically take them through a pilot training to form all of those relationships. So that way, when they're done with the pathway, they're now ready to keep going on their own pathway in those environments. So that's pretty much what we work on in all those places. So, so part of your equipping is when someone is learning a practice or a tool, they're responsible to almost immediately teach someone else and to share it with someone else. Am I hearing that right? We immediately ask them to practice it with other people. Yep. Every single thing they do, they have to practice with other people. So it's not sitting in a classroom and listening to it. It's I'm going to give you a little bit of it. Now do it to each other. I'm going to do a little bit more now, do it to each other. And so they're just always turning it around to practice the very thing we taught. And ideally, they're practicing while we're watching them. That's the best because then we can give them feedback about how well they're doing. And then all the spiritual, like every spiritual formation practice, we take a quarter and emphasize a new one every quarter for all of our groups. And they practice it at a personal level. They work it out in their DNA. They process it in terms of how it's changed their life and their mission of community. And that at large, we're talking about it in the larger gathering. So it's very holistic in all of those four environments. As you were going through that, I was thinking how easily it would have been to stop at deep without the exposure and uh, without the, the reinforcement and then go back and repeat and, until you're there. I mean, and I'm sure, certainly glad that, uh, that our medical profession, one of our earlier guests, you know, we're really grateful that they make them actually work with a master surgeon before opening the, the scalpel, opening my chest with the scalpel or whatnot. So, uh, man, that's so good. Here's a tension that evolved in my head. And then we got one last question for you. As you were talking, boy, that is an awful lot of work <laughs> to train up these people. I mean, that sounds cumbersome. That sounds like a lot. And, but at the same time, here's the other part of the thing you described earlier that the influence of this training as it's multiplied over time is now Southeast Asia, South America, all over the world, the DNA has taken root in the individuals and the individuals have seen that multiplication. Did you see that level coming in and how in the world were you able to persevere in the earliest years? To, you know, you know, we, we hear that, that phrase, you know, big things come in a long, you know, obedience in the same direction. How, how did you stay the course, you know, trusting that that was the kind of investment you wanted to make in people? First, I think it's important to, to recognize that one of the churches, the last church I served as a youth pastor was Willow Creek. And, you know, when I saw literally tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people wanting to learn from them, and I was there, you know, leading the youth ministry. Uh, but we kept saying, we're not making disciples here. We kept saying it all the time. I mean, like as a church, 
but it was like no one was listening until Greg Hawkins finally said, okay, I'll go get the numbers. I'll get the real information. And he did the reveal study. So Bill Hybels would see it. And I was already gone after when they revealed it, but I knew that was the un, under, under the, the facade was this grumbling of like, we're not really doing it. It looks like it, but we're not. And I think, I think being in the environment where it looked as successful as it possibly could and still knowing it wasn't actually doing it is what settled it so deeply in my soul that I'm just not going to do that again. Um, so then in the early days, like you said, I've been at this for 20 years or so. Um, in the early days, it, I was, I was laughed at, you know, a bit of a butt of the joke every once in a while, even told like, Jeff, you're a rock star. Why aren't you building a mega church? You could have done that a long time ago. And just needing to go like, I'm just, that's not what I'm here for. I, I've already been a part of that. I, I don't, that's not what I'm here for. I want to make disciples. And then, and then just like, I think humbly looking at Jesus and going like, man, if he's the son of God, it took him over three years and he only had a very small group of people, but here we are today because of what he did for three years, three and a half years, maybe we should follow his example and trust that he did know what he was doing and that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or it is like yeast, that that little bit in a small area can actually grow to impact the whole world. And so that was that was in me so strongly after those years of seeing the other that I just didn't want to go back. And I think the other thing was we kept saying we want to do whatever we do with the few that God gives us so that if they went anywhere in the world, they could be the church there. They wouldn't need to depend on somebody to build a church. They could go be the church. And I we didn't know how far it would go. We just said, let's make that our goal to train people in that way. So if they are going to go somewhere else, they actually bless that place with the ability to make disciples there. That's so good. We carry the same DNA. I mean, the name of our ministry is Disciples Made. And interestingly enough, the name came uh, from something one of your associates, a former associates, said, Caesar. He was on a call actually with Rob and Alan Hirsch and the Future Travelers thing that we were talking about. And uh, the question to Caesar was, what do you guys measure out there at Soma Communities? And Caesar, in his, in his way, said, well, it seems to me if Jesus said, go and make disciples, we ought to measure how many disciples we've actually made. And I was like, that's the name. Because I was just in this beginning, you know, process of uh, putting this thing together. And I was like, that's the name of it. And, and we know we've won if we have made a disciple. And then it was, you know, what does that mean? And, but at that point, the, what it meant was they have all they need. They no longer are dependent upon us. They're interdependent with us. And that takes the long haul. But, but what you've experienced, what we've experienced as well, and what the listeners on this call can experience, if you're in that tension going, do I want to make this long investment? You know, which is going to take extra work for a time. I do want those results. I mean, I do want that kingdom impact with my life. That's why I signed up and then, you know, I ended up running a church instead of seeing some of that stuff. If that's kind of where you are. For the church leaders listening to this and they're at that point and it's overwhelming. Like I, I did, I signed up to start a Jesus movement, but I ended up running a machine. And now I've seen this machine is broken what would you say to them in closing? Like, where do they start? Well, if they're saying that, then they're in a good place. Like I started out wanting to be about disciples, but now I'm running a machine. I'm a program director, you know, whatever you want to call it. Event planner. <laughs> Event planner. And that's what it is, right? And I'm marketing yeah. 
I'm a marketing director, an event planner, program director, then if they're saying, man, what, what happened? Then that's already, that's good. Cause they're, it's like the gift of repentance isn't, I changed my behavior. It's that my mind got changed. God changed my mind about something. And that if, if it really got changed, then we can walk in new ways. Like genuine repentance has fruit. And so if they're there, then I'd say that's a gift that God's granting you the possibility of your mind being changed about something, which means now walk that out. Now, part about that, you know, it's kind of like the matrix, right? You know, it's like it, it seemed it seemed better in the matrix because at least even though I knew it wasn't really meat, it tasted better than the other. So, you know, like Morpheus, or I think it's that's who it is, one of the guys in the, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he's like, you know, ignorance is bliss. I'd rather go back. And I think to some, that's what they do. And I would just say, you know, keep moving forward. Um, it's going to start with repentance. And then it's going to take baby steps of practice, which is going to require a new scorecard. And it's also going to require you to re- revisit your definition of what a disciple is. Because if we're saying, I want to, disciples made is what we're measuring, but you don't have a definition or clarity what that is then you don't even know where to go so repent take steps forward starting with changing of the scorecard and clearly defining disciple and then start to ask yourself what is that really going to take and i just say dive back into the scriptures man it's it's there <laughs> it's all in there you know and it's it's not there's not some magic pill and there's not some magic formula it's a lot more basic honestly than what we've made it to be. It's just what you've already said. It, it's arduous. It takes time. And if you want a fast cookie cutter approach, then don't don't go into the business of making disciples. Because it's taken me 18 years to raise my firstborn. You know, I, I liken discipleship more to parent spiritual parenting. And I'm successful. She can leave home and begin to do be her own adult who can hopefully have a family, Lord willing, and and do all those things for someone else. That's the sign that I did my job. But I only I can only handle three personally. I have three kids. Some can handle more. I can only do three. So just accept the capacity that God's given you and be faithful with that. Instead, stop measuring yourself according to someone else's capacity. Just be faithful to the ones that God's given you. And and if you got a bigger church, start still start with just a few. Because eventually that will work itself through the the entire dough like leaven does. And just believe Jesus' words. They're true. Anytime I just do it with a few, it starts to get out to everybody else eventually. And that's what happened with us. We planted one church in Tacoma. We never thought it would be big. Never tried to make it big. It grew beyond what we thought. And it's touched the corners of the earth. And I that was not intended. That was just... God being faithful to do what he does when we're faithful to do what he's given us. It's beautiful. You know, when we're walking with church leaders on this journey, you mentioned the exact same points we highlight. We say it starts with vision. In other words, what's your definition of a disciple? And it's time for you to go wrestle with the scriptures again and figure out what's the, what are the radical minimums for what it means to be a disciple? What are your core theological convictions? And then the second step we say is voice who listens to you and is ready to go. And like Jesus, you pray, you let the Holy Spirit bring illumination on who you're, who you invite, and then you go on the long journey together. And so if you're a church leader and you're ready to begin again, it starts with repentance. And it starts with returning to your, what are your core theological convictions about what it means to be a disciple. 
And also, if you're smart, like Jeff, uh, many people don't know this, he copyrighted the phrase missional community, so he's independently wealthy, uh, based off of the royalties. <laughs> and so he. And there is the not so latent middle schooler. <laughs> He is. Not true. <laughs> Unless someone else took my money. <laughs> well, there's this court battle between Mike Breen and Jeff that we really don't want to get into right now over oh the phrase missional community. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh. Jeff. Yeah, he, he probably said, he said it before me. He's older than me, so I'll give him credit. <laughs> it's done. Battle over. <laughs> Jeff, I we really can't imagine having um, someone that we'd be more grateful for to wrap up season two of, uh, of this podcast with us. Uh, thank you for pioneering. Thank you for your obedience when no one was paying attention. Thank you for your persistence when maybe even those closest to you looked at you and said, what are we doing? Um, thank you for continuing once you um, got to a point where people started asking for, for holding people's feet to the fire, not giving them easy answers, but inviting them into a similar journey that you've been on. Thank you for uh, blessing us with your time today and making that sacrifice. We're deeply grateful. Thank you very much. Thanks for what you guys are doing to serve the church. You bet. God bless you. And we look forward to seeing you back here. We'll let you know what's coming up in season three, not long from now. We hope that what you heard today was an encouragement to you or that it increased your curiosity in making disciples that make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our experiences or set up a coaching call, you can visit us at disciplesmade.com or email podcast at disciplesmade.com. <laughs>